0: All right, I'm just going to jump right out the gate and say the words that are taboo that we're going to talk about in this episode. Menstruation, periods, tampons. (laughs) These are all things that, uh, you know, sometimes you say them and they make you feel uncomfortable. They're not things that we talk about as regularly as we could or should uh, in society. And also, you know, if you were to in society. And if you bring them up in front of, you know, elementary school kids, middle school kids, you're going to hear giggles. You might even hear giggles from adults. But I think that this is an important topic. And so I'm going to back up a little bit and just say, I was working on a story in issue six of the Good Newspaper about how to empower women and people who menstruate during their periods. And I realized a few things. One, I didn't know how to spell menstruation. I kept on getting the little squiggly lines underneath the word in Google Docs. Uh, I now know how to spell menstruation. And also, the lack of access to period supplies uh, and the things that people use on their periods is huge. There's a lot of people who don't have access to these things that are so important to a huge percentage of the population. And so I was researching the problem, which is how we always start each story in the good newspaper. But then I started looking into who was creating solutions. And I found so many incredible organizations and individuals, but one person and one organization really stood out to me. Nadia Okamoto is the founder and executive director of Period, an organization she founded at the age of 16. Now, Nadia had an experience growing up. She found herself uh, without a home as a teenager and saw firsthand how difficult it is for people on their period to deal with their period when they're experiencing homelessness. And so Nadia just started doing something about it. She started putting together kits with everything you need for your period. She started giving them out to organizations and people in need. And now today, Period is the largest youth-run NGO in women's health, and they're dedicated to ensuring that menstrual products are reliably available to those who need them most. It's wild. Since 2014, they've addressed over 400,000 periods and registered over 230 campus chapters to join in in this meaningful work. And so I asked Nadia to be on the podcast today and she so kindly said yes. And Nadia is fascinating. So she goes to school at Harvard in 2017. Nadia ran for office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, she didn't end up winning that campaign, but her campaign team made this huge impact in mobilizing young voters on the ground and at the polls, which is amazing. Nadia is also an author. She just published uh, her debut book, Period power: A Manifesto for the Menstrual Movement, uh, and most recently, Nadia was included in InStyle Magazine's The Badass 50, which is a list of women who are changing the world, and she was listed alongside Michelle Obama, Ariana Grande, and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. And I so loved this conversation with Nadia because she has been doing this impactful work since she was a teenager, and she's really honest about what that experience is like and kind of the struggle of evolving and shifting and changing and and what that does to the way you see yourself and and what happens when your identity shifts and changes. We also talk a lot about periods and I tried to just become more comfortable with uh, how to do that. And I think I'm growing. I think I'm getting good at that, you know, as somebody who hasn't given periods much thought In my whole life. And so (laughs) I love this conversation and I'm so glad we got to have it. I am Brandon Harvey and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Sounds Good isn't your typical three steps to success podcast. We don't host this podcast for the sake of leaving you with bullet points on self improvement we just believe that our lives are more complex than that and so we show up here on sounds good to ask big questions dive into nuance and learn from each other's stories so without any further ado let's jump straight into my conversation with nadia I saw that you grew up in Portland. I love Portland. I went to Portland State and I'm actually about to move back to Portland.
1: Wait, what? Why are you moving? Where are you living right now? I'm in
0: Nashville, Tennessee.
1: Oh my gosh. Okay. So you're going to move from Nashville all the way back to Portland.
0: Yep. Doing the road trip across the country. It's going to be a wild drive, but I'm so excited to be back.
1: Oh, that will be fun though.
0: What part of Portland did you grow up in?
1: Right in the city.
0: Good, awesome. Northeast, southeast, northwest, southwest. Northwest. Northwest. We're in northwest.
1: I grew up in northwest on 18th and Flanders, like uh, right in the Alphabet District, um like a few blocks from 23rd Street.
0: That's amazing. I was on 23rd and Irving.
1: Oh my god! Wait. Okay. So how long have you lived there before?
0: I was there like five or six years.
1: Oh shit! Okay. So you know the area really well.
0: Yeah, I love it.
1: Okay. Wait. So that, that then my story, like of how I started, period. Like everything will make a lot of sense because it's very portland-based and awesome. like our headquarters are still there too what um good yeah
0: okay well let's let's get into it then and i'll just actually here here's kind of how i want to maybe start off and i've never started a podcast with this question and i probably won't start any other future podcast with this question but can we talk about your first period
1: yes my first period um so I got my first period when I was, I believe, in seventh, sixth grade. Yeah, sixth grade. Um, I was, I think, 12 years old. And I remember very clearly that it was December 26th because for about eight years, by, like, I mean, my parents being divorced, the day after Christmas every year, we would fly from Portland to New York City to visit my dad. And it was always, like, a really high anxiety time because you know there was a lot going on with my dad in terms of my, the abuse my sisters and I experienced with him um but not really really realizing that it was abuse at the time so it was like a lot of anxiety and then right when we were rushing out of the house to the airport I went to the bathroom and that's when I looked down and saw blood and like realized it was my first period and as like an over dramatic young teenage girl like automatically thought i was dying even though i had known what menstruation was i think like it's just like no one prepares you for what it actually feels like when you look down and see blood no matter how much you know about menstruation um no one tells you about what that experience is really like you know
0: yeah yeah i mean that's got to be such a surprise especially at that age when you're not expecting that at all
1: yeah i mean it wasn't that i wasn't expecting it because to be honest my mom started telling me about periods when i was like Maybe seven years old. Oh, wow. And I remember she would get me, she got me my first like little panty liners when I was in fourth grade. And every time I had like an emotional day, I'd be like, it's PMS. I can feel it coming. (laughs) Like, I was so excited to get my period because I think growing up, I was always really obsessed with the idea of being older, right? Like, my mom always jokes that I always wore underwear that was like three sizes too big. All my clothes hung off of me when I was younger because I always wanted to wear what all the Like, not even what the bigger kids were wearing, but, like, the size the bigger kids were wearing. Funny. Um, And so I think I was always really excited about getting my period and getting boobs and, you know, growing into my body.
0: And so that happens, and you have an existential crisis, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm dying Then you kind of come down from that.
1: Yeah. So I really thought I was bleeding out. And so actually like the confrontation with my mom was like, oh my gosh, like I'm like, this is really happening. I'm too young to die. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it wasn't until I went out to my mom and I showed her my underwear, then she was like, you're a woman, you're a woman and started doing her little happy chant around.
0: It seems to me that that's maybe the beginning of this story of how you came to create period the organization
1: no Um, i mean so that's not really like the story behind period but i think that it did play a part of like me growing up in a family that was super open about periods that i'm sure helped me feel comfortable when i did start this sort of activism
0: yes and you had a later experience in high school that was, it seems like that was the catalyst, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, So yeah, I founded the organization when I was 16 years old, uh, really inspired by my family's own experience with living without a home of our own. So when I was a freshman in high school, my mom ended up parting ways with her job and Um, We ended up living with friends who have since become family. And since you know the Portland area, um, we moved to like more far out northeast side. Okay. Um, And my school was more on the edge of Beaverton. So pretty far away. The
0: opposite direction. So you're like commuting all the way across town and then a little bit outside of town.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So during this time of housing instability, my commute to school turned from about 12 minutes to over two hours long on public transportation. Um, so I would have to usually take two buses to get to school and where I would change buses was in old town, Portland, Oregon. So right downtown. Yeah. Um, and in that area at the time, they're like, I mean, still there are like 10 homeless shelters in a two block radius. And I would regularly see the same homeless woman going to and from school. And it was really through like getting in random conversations with them and, I was never afraid to, like, ask them about their life story or, like, why they were in the situation they were in. Why do you think
0: that is that you felt so comfortable?
1: You know, I think a lot of it is because, I mean, I'm very extroverted as a person. I think at a certain point, like, back then, I remember when I was, yeah, freshman and sophomore year of high school, I didn't even have a smartphone. I had one of those slide phones. Right, yeah, um, that really only had texting, <laughs> so honestly, I think it was like sometimes I would get stuck at this bus stop for an hour or something because I would, I did a lot of extracurricular, so I wouldn't go home until pretty late when the buses weren't running as frequently. And back then, if you didn't have like Instagram or social media at your fingertips, like you know, I'm kind of dating myself, like, <laughs> I think it was really like spending hours at the bus stop or spending hours cumulatively with these women, um, and just wanting to talk right and so I think that sort of is where it came from and I sort of by practice started asking them this question what do you find most challenging about your living situation and I think at the time I was just really fascinated with stories of hardship to like better understand what my family was going through um, and try to like distract myself from what we were going through and those conversations with homeless women were actually like a big part of I think what pushed me to get go more into service, but also pushed me to to really think about periods as well, right? Because on one hand, talking to these homeless women were actually the first time that I realized that I had grown up with domestic violence and sex abuse in my own family. Because when you grow up with that sort of behavior in your family, you don't realize it's wrong because it's all you know, right? Mm. And so it wasn't until I talked to these other women who like called it out for being wrong or called it out for being inappropriate or like just not okay that I think I really realized that about my own life as well. But I also think that in talking with them, I realized how privileged I was because unlike them, I had a mom who was protecting us above all. I had, you know, my family, I had a roof over our heads, I had school, I had. still like so much opportunity economically. So I think that there was a lot about those conversations that pushed me to like, want to reconcile that privilege through doing service leadership. And then also by asking this question of like, what do you find most challenging about your living situation? That's where I sort of collected this accidental anthology of these stories of women using toilet paper and socks and brown paper, grocery bags and cardboard to take care of their periods.
0: Wow. Okay. So you kind of came to this understanding that, hey, there's people who are living with less privilege than me, people who are living without homes, and their periods are like significantly impacting their ability to find success or thrive
1: yeah I mean absolutely I think it was it was just hearing their stories of you know you literally using trash that they found to take care of their periods or this experience of when you were on your period just like trying to find a public restroom and sitting near it before you could really go about your day like waiting your period out or missing job interviews because you had your period and you only had one pair of clean pants right um and it sort of just catalyzed this unhealthy obsession with periods. I had like in my free time, I would just Google search keywords about period poverty, and it's through that that I learned about like the global scale of period poverty, of like periods being the number one reason why girls miss school in developing countries yeah. and a leading cause of their um, dropping out of school, getting married early, undergoing female genital mutilation or social isolation, um, and like really reading these stories about how I mean even today like two, no, four people now have died in 2019 because of practices around menstruation of social isolation, right? And I mean, even in the US, learning that period-related pain was the leading cause of absenteeism for girls here in the US more than the common cold. And then in 2014, now the number's 35, but then 40 states in the US had a sales tax on period products because they're considered luxury items. But products like Rogaine, Viagra, and penile pumps were considered essential goods.
0: And so they weren't taxed, but these things that you know, every single human who menstruates are being taxed.
1: Yeah. So it was like those, the more necessary products being considered non-essential goods. So inherently like these luxury items. Um And so the sales tax applied to them, uh, considering them a luxury. Yeah.
0: Fascinating. Okay. And so all of these things are building up. And what are the emotions that you're feeling around this? You, I mean, you're effectively seeing... Injustices. What, like, what's your internal response?
1: So, I mean, on an emotional level, like, I think they're sort of twofold. First of all, I had never really been so passionate about an issue to the point where, like, it sort of became everything I thought about. Right? Like, I mean, obviously, I grew up in a family where, like, my mom always wanted us to have an opinion about something. Right? Like, it was a dinner table practice that all of our placemats from the time I was a kid had like all 50 states on them or all of the presidents and we had to talk about them. And um, when I got to middle school, it was like uh, every day we would bring a topic that we learned about to the table to like discuss, right? Like my mom always was really trying to hyper uh, to foster this sort of, you know, hyper intellectual conversation as much as you can be at age 10. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I mean, so I was always new about like social issues, always knew how to have an opinion about them. But this was the first time that I had learned about an injustice and just felt with this burning passion that not only like we needed to do something about it as a global population, but specifically, I had to do something about it, right? And then on a personal level, I think in feeling that sort of fire within me was also the first time that I think I really felt like my personal potential um, in my voice, right? Like feeling mm. like I can do something to make a change, Right. And at the age of 16, I found myself in some really tough situations where like, you know, at age 16, I was coming to terms with the fact that my relationship with my dad was really abusive and I wasn't ready to talk about it publicly. Um, And it actually didn't really come out until a few years later. But it was when I first started to think about it. But also at the age of 16, I found myself in a really abusive relationship with someone where like rape and sexual assault and physical assault were a regular part of my life. And I think that that really manifested in my feeling like my self-worth really came from my body. And it wasn't until I really like felt this passion and fire about period poverty that I think I felt like my worth is so much more than my body because I I, I felt like I needed to say something about it. And by saying something, I could make a change. And I think that was real. like even just learning about period poverty was really the first time that I felt like this burning potential that I wanted to live up to.
0: I think that's so remarkable that you had all of these you know, things happening in your life that were affecting you. But then you were still seeing these issues that were affecting other people. And you said, I'm going to go and I'm going to work to do something about these things that are affecting other people, even though I think it would have been completely valid for you to just turn completely inward and focus on those, you know, really heavy issues that you were experiencing.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that, I mean, obviously it would have been easier to not do anything about it, <laughs> but I think that like, it was the sort of thing where I started realizing it in everywhere around me, right? Like I would notice not only, not only, not only think about the issue of period poverty, but watch how like when my girlfriends, even if no one was around, needed a tampon or our pad, like they would whisper about it, right? Like mm. we would all talk about periods as a bad word or like I would catch myself, um, like in class, if I needed to go to the bathroom to like change a period product, I would bring my whole damn backpack back with me, right? Or like um, just so that people didn't see the products. Like I just sort of realized how the stigma manifested um, in my own life.
0: Yeah, I think that's such an interesting thing because I know that I grew up with that stigma as a you know a dude who doesn't menstruate, uh, and I've only recently started to just like feel more comfortable just talking about you know i'm like married to a person who menstruates i you know have siblings and family who menstruate you know all these things and it wasn't you know until like the last few years where i started to like try to intentionally break that stigma because i think i don't know i feel like it's it's really strong especially with guys and so to hear that it's true also just in the company of just you know people who menstruate i think that shows how strong of a taboo there is.
1: Yeah, of course. And I mean, I think a lot of that manifests just from like how most of us learn about periods, right? Like Mm. still today, there's no requirement that periods are taught in school. But when they are, it's usually in gender segregated classrooms where like, the girls are in one room, the guys are in another. So yeah. the guys never learn about it, and the girls instead learn that you only talk about it with other girls behind closed doors, right? Yeah. And so I think that a lot of it is just manifested or from a very, very young age. Um, but also, just that, like, because it's not an open conversation people who don't menstruate just there's no need for them to really know about it right and i think what we're we're trying to do as an organization is fight for this idea that this is not a women's issue this is a human issue that we all need to be talking about and feeling comfortable with
0: yeah i think that's so beautifully said
1: like beyond that i think it's also fighting for like eliminating gender even as like a, a a binary thing in this conversation right like realizing that um not only women menstruate, but also people who don't identify as women can also menstruate as well, right? Like um, people who might be transgender or non-binary can also get their periods.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I've been trying to be intentional about, you know, the the pronouns I use and descriptors because, you know, there are a lot of people who get left out of that conversation. Uh, and, you know, those people are usually people who are already facing a lot of, you know, probably discrimination and being left out in a number of other ways. And so you know, leaving them out of a conversation around something that's already taboo for, you know, other folks, I think, I don't know, it's something that I think is worth being really intentional about.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think like, it's something that even I catch myself doing. Like, I think it's really important as someone in any place of privilege to come into every conversation, feeling really humble in their experience, but also really knowing that they don't know everything. They should ask questions if they don't know and always be listening to learn more, right? Like when I started this organization, I was not even aware about the need to be gender inclusive. And it's been a big learning experience of needing to take a step back, empowering other people who have the actual experience of not being cisgender and getting their periods and just wanting to learn as much as I can.
0: That's amazing. And I feel like that's such an interesting thing about anytime that you start something, You know, you come in from such a genuine, authentic place and you have to figure out you've got to figure out what you've got to figure out, basically. You know, there's so much more to learn. And for you to continue to be in a place where you're willing to listen and be humble, even though you've been, you know, doing this for years, I think that's really huge.
1: Uh, Well, thank you. (laughs) I appreciate it.
0: So you are in high school. All of these things are kind of hitting you at once. And you're realizing, I want to do something about this. And so you begin to do something. Like, tell me about... What kind of the early stages of you trying to make a difference in this issue? Looked like and kind of how that's evolved through the years?
1: Yeah. So I decided that I wanted to start a nonprofit, not really knowing what that meant, but just knew that the word like nonprofit meant like doing something good, right? So I decided (laughs) that I wanted to do that. And my first step was finding a co founder because I mean, I remember my mom like warning me that there was so much like other work beyond just like the activism, but like the operations, the finances. So I basically just found the guy in my class who. I knew of it as just being super nice, but also being the first kid done with Excel spreadsheets in math class and then Whoa. walking around and helping everyone else. Right.
0: This is in high school. You just like go to a class. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So
1: in high school, in high school, I just like went up to a classmate, pitched them my idea. And he uh, basically had experience, had interest in wanting to start something, but didn't really know what he wanted to start it. So he automatically said yes. Um, and then he, told me later, like a few days later when we met for our first like get together, that he didn't even know what a period really was. Right. (laughs) But but at the age of 16, we like embarked on this journey together. And, um, we met at a Starbucks that Saturday. It was actually our first ever conversation outside of the classroom. Um, until then we had one class together, we had Chinese class. Um, and he was always the best in that Chinese class. And I was always the worst. And, um, we literally sat there looking up questions like, what is a nonprofit? What is the IRS? What is a board of directors? What's a 501c3? And we literally sat down and filled up all of those forms ourselves, incorporated ourselves, became a 501c3 ourselves, and just had my mom and his dad sign off because we weren't old enough to sign any of the forms. Um, But that's really how we started. And it was really just like doing anything we could to solve a simple solution of getting prairie products to people who need them.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And so practically you know you you start filling out forms and stuff but like what what are the practical ways that you are getting people the period products that they need when you're a high schooler what does that look like
1: yeah it was raising money like i would try to raise money in any way I could whether that be on social media or pitching to people at staff meetings or anything like that um so I think it was a lot of, uh, fundraising anything like small amounts, um, buying period products from every Dollar Tree Walmart in the area, getting our friends together to put together packages of period products and naturally posting on social media about what we were doing. And within a matter of months, we had messages from hundreds of students and journalists from all over the country who wanted to know more and bring this to their own area. And I think it was really that, um, that experience that pushed us, uh, to grow nationally within a matter of a month, right? Like we wrote down everything we did in our community and said, replicate this in your own. And that's how our chapter network was born.
0: And I was looking at that little page on your website. It's not a little page. I was looking at the page on your website of how many chapters there are and how many states are you guys in right now?
1: So I think we're in 50 states now.
0: Wow. And it's not just like one in each state. It's like 25 in some like it's crazy yeah
1: yeah and that website page is actually not updated at all um well, that's but, amazing so <laughs> sort of as a recap on what period is now we're now a global youth and NGO that provi- that fights to end period poverty and stigma through service education and advocacy so what that means is we distribute period products to people in need we try to change the way people think talk and learn about periods through education and we're now working in policy from the local to the federal level passing legislation with city councils and school governments all around the country getting period products into school restrooms um, to be treated as a necessity, just like toilet paper at the state level. We're developing campaigns to repeal the tampon tax in the 35 states where it still exists. And at the national, we continue our advocacy and trying to fight for like food stamps to cover period products as a necessity, which they don't currently.
0: Oh, interesting you're fighting for more accessibility ultimately in all these different avenues.
1: Yeah. And since founding period at the end of 2014, we have now addressed over 490,000 periods through product distribution through hundreds of partners all around the country and around the world and 15 other countries as well. Um, and we have 280 campus chapters at universities and high schools around the U.S. and abroad. So according to this Forbes article that just came out, they re- confirmed that like period is now the largest youth and NGO in women's health in the world now.
0: That is incredible. Congratulations. Yeah,
1: thank you. Thank you. No, it's been really amazing just to watch. And I think like I'm like when I started, like none of my plan was to go beyond Old Town Portland. <laughs> and it's crazy to realize like how global we are now.
0: Tell me about how that happens where, you know, you're just trying to make a difference in literally this place that you're taking the bus through that, you know, that you're seeing with your own eyes. What does it feel like to expand beyond that?
1: I mean, I think to be honest, like I've never been the person who takes time to reflect and be like, wow, (laughs) we've come so far. We've done so much. Like I'm such a workaholic in the way of like, I'm all, I don't reflect as much on the successes, but I'm always like, what are the things we didn't do as well in the last three years? And what can we be doing better in the forward to make sure that we're doing everything we can to maximize our potential, right? Um, and I think that it it's really in thinking in that way that period has been able to grow so fast, because we've always been very focused on what we can be doing more.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And so what do you kind of feel like is next for you? Like, what are the things that you feel like you can do more?
1: I think that I'm really excited to have like my book as, so I I published my first book in October called Period Power. Yes, so exciting. Thank you. Yeah, so I signed with Simon & Schuster and just released it called Period Power Manifesto for the Menstrual Movement. And it's been really amazing to just see how having a book has been able to build our audience in a really strong way, but also create more unity within the movement, right? Now we have chapters who feel like we're working off of the same manifesto. Right. Like I wrote Mm. this chapter, this book to be like, here's here's what we're doing in our community and why we need to be doing it. Right. And um, it's been really amazing to see the sort of unity that we've been able to catalyze over the last year. And I'm really hoping we can do that even more going forward.
0: That's amazing. And then I know that beyond just, you know, your work with period you're doing kind of other work outside of that. And recently you ran for office in Massachusetts in Cambridge. Yes. <laughs> what inspired you to run for office?
1: Yeah, so I ran for Cambridge City Council in 2017. And I, yes, yeah, so I was 19 years old, freshman in college. And it really sort of came from that same attitude of being really angry about housing affordability in Cambridge and then, you know, downloading every publicly accessible report on like income inequality and um, gentrification and just building the sort of interest in doing more um, and frustration with the current city council that they weren't doing enough about including student voices as well. So yeah, founded this campaign team and we ran this uh, grassroots campaign knocking on about 20,000 doors in the area and ran against 26 other candidates. Um, We didn't win in the end, but we made history with student and youth turnout in that area. And that was honestly enough for me to feel really happy about it.
0: Well, isn't it remarkable how you can accomplish things without winning? Like without being number one in any avenue of life, you can still move the needle. And it sounds like you really you know, you got a bunch of youth engaged in a way that they had never been before.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think like, that's what the campaign experience taught me was the sort of um, realizing that, like the actual winning isn't always the most you can get out of that situation, right? Like, even in, in looking at how, for example, like in how when my book came out, I was so anxious and struggling with imposter syndrome of like, why am I writing this book? No one will read it. And I think like book sales have been hard because it's such a niche category. Um, But I think really trying to push myself to just be really thankful for the opportunity to write a book and publish one.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really remarkable way of thinking about it because it's, yeah, you're right. You know, you can't necessarily compare such a niche thing to, you know, Harry Potter or, you know, like whatever it is. But the people who are reading it, are going to be so deeply impacted. And so you just get to continue to move the needle one person by one person.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's my hope. Um, but it, I mean, it's hard, right? Because like, I think I've always been a really competitive person like with myself. And so I've always wanted to push myself to do better, be better, like be the biggest and the best, right? And I think it's been a learning opportunity of like knowing how to really think about what it means to maximize impact, right? Like less about the big numbers, but more about how deep you're going with each individual person.
0: Earlier, you talked about how growing up, you always just wanted to be older. You wore older kids clothes, all these things. Do you feel like that's still true for you? I mean, you're you're still young, but do you do you feel like you're settling into where you're
1: at? No, okay. So when I was younger, I always wanted to be older, and now I want to be younger because I think so <laughs> much it's not it's not even about aging or anything like that. It's that so much of my core identity over the last few years has been being a young activist, right? Yeah. Like I'm like running period, being the teenager who ran for office, like being the young person who signed to write a book, and um now I'm chief brand officer at Juve Consulting, which is a Gen Z marketing agency that works with companies all the way from small ones all the way up to big ones like Microsoft and Unilever and Verizon, right? Like, And we employ hundreds of um, young people all around the country to talk to companies about how to market to young people, right? So, so much of my professional and personal identity has been around being a young person, and so I think that it's not even my concern about being aging, but it's, it's sort of that fear of now needing to, like now that I'm 21, I'm, I know I'm still so young, but like sort of preparing myself to, f- to strengthen a new identity of maybe being someone who empowers young people or young activists or finds ways to maximize the maturity I have and the older audience that I can connect with in doing this work, but I think that there is a lot of fear that I have, I mean, even in turning twenty-one, of realizing that like I'm not a I'm not a, you know, a teenager anymore.
0: Yeah, it, it is hard when your identity shifts and this thing that people always have known you for maybe isn't true anymore or is becoming less true in trying to figure out, okay, what are the core parts of me that will never change? How can I continue to lean into those things? while also leveraging the strengths of the things that I am right now, but may not be tomorrow.
1: No, for sure. And I think like that's something I think about a lot of, like, even when it comes to my role with period, like actually something I'll be announcing more strongly over the next month is um, to actually taking a step back from the executive director role at period and focusing more on the advocacy, right? Because mm. I never thought that I'd be running a global organization. And to be honest, I don't love it. You know, like I I love that period is global, but being the executive director of a global organization means fundraising a lot, doing a lot of admin work, like project managing and people managing Uh, now full time staff. Right. Which is a big honor and really exciting, but it's not why I got into this work. Right. Like I really got into doing this work because I wanted to talk about periods and work in the real world with other people and brands to um, spread the mission of this menstrual movement. And so I'm actually going to be taking a step back, hiring a new executive director on so that I can move back into focusing my time on being sort of the spokesperson and also, a recruiting more brands to maximize our potential as uh, you know as a movement, but also focusing my efforts on designing a national effort to repeal the tampon tax in the u s
0: that 's amazing, and I think it 's also worth mentioning that. Uh, on top of all of these things that you're doing, you are also still in school. Is that correct?
1: No. So I'm actually taking time oh. off from Harvard. So I'm okay, a rising cool. junior at Harvard College, but um, with the book coming out and everything, and honestly just feeling a little bit burnt out after the campaign, yeah. um, I'm taking some time off from college. And so I'm tentatively going back in the fall. Although I've really been struggling with that over the last you know, few weeks, because Every week, a new person announces running for president, and I think I would drive myself a little bit crazy being stuck on campus watching the presidential election unfold.
0: You want to be a part of the campaign. Or not
1: even a part of the uh, a specific campaign, but I want to be a part of... I think the presidential elections are a huge opportunity where civic engagement increases, where people are paying attention to politics more, where you start having these public figures who are being more politically engaged with their platforms. Um, And I truly believe that this is a really pivotal election, especially for women's rights and reproductive rights. And I think that I'd want to be a part of the advocacy around reproductive rights um, woven into the narrative around the presidential elections.
0: That is a really interesting point to think about how you could you know, who knows what it would look like or what it would take to get, you know, one of these leading candidates to essentially start as a part of their platform, including, you know, repealing the tampon tax and and making, you know, period supplies more accessible. That would be Fascinating.
1: Well, I mean, and it would be my dream for it to be on all of their platforms, right? One hundred percent. But yeah, I think ultimately, like, would love the the final presidential candidates to have this as something as, as something that they champion.
0: I think that's so amazing, and I love how you have this very holistic vision of how you can, you know, focus on the things that you want to focus on. You know, if if it takes starting an organization, you start an organization. If it takes, you know, putting things into packs to give to. Other organizations, you do that. If it takes running for, you know, for office, you're doing that. And if it takes being, you know, a, an advocate during a political season, you're doing that. And I think it just shows your your focus and your drive on this issue that you care about and has affected you and it affects so many people. And
1: well, I think sort of on that, like, I think I'm always asked, like, you know, in all these interviews, like, wh- what would you tell someone? like a younger person who's trying to take action like this. And I always joke that I sort of just sound like a Google and Nike ad because (laughs) I truly believe the only reason I've gotten to, or not the only reason, but like in terms of an attitude and mindset, like the reason I've gotten to where I am today is because if I didn't know something, I would just Google it, right? If I didn't know how to run for an office or even if I could run for office, if I didn't know how to write a book, I was Googling how to publish a book i googled how old do you have to be to run for office like what are the requirements like so much of the answers are at our fingertips and social media is a huge resource and um i think my other uh, aspect is just going for it and not really thinking too much about the self-doubt you might have right like i think so much of what i see my holding my peers back is this is this fear that um you don't have enough qualifications, or you don't have the right degrees, or you don't have the right professional experience. And I think wanting to push people to just go for it and if they're passionate about something to just do it. All right,
0: that was a that was a great conversation. I'm so glad that I got to have Nadia on the podcast, and I'm so glad we got to dive into a topic that we don't normally dive into. Uh, on this podcast, but ultimately it centers on these same ideas of what do you do when you're confronted with injustice? What do you do when injustice knocks on your front door? Do you become cynical? Do you shut down or do you do something about it? And sometimes doing something about it is as simple as, you know, going to the grocery store, buying some tampons and, and giving them to some organizations. And sometimes that small first step leads to creating a huge global organization what a beautiful story make sure that you check out what uh what nadia is doing by visiting period.org or following them on social media at period movement and then you can also follow nadia at nadia akimoto on instagram and twitter and oh check out her book period power a manifesto for the menstrual movement uh available wherever books are sold If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. I think you'd also love my conversations with two other women who started doing good at a young age. Um, Specifically, I'm thinking of Katie Myler and Sarah Lee. You can find both of these episodes in more than 100 other episodes. Actually, more than 100. I think we just hit 150 episodes. That's amazing. That's incredible. By searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure that you hit subscribe to keep on getting more inspiring conversations with incredible people delivered straight to your phone while you sleep. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good Good Good, a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show you can get lots more hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at good 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 co and you can also follow me on social media i'm at brandon harvey we also create a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people ideas and movements that are changing the world for the better you can check out our newest issue which includes a little story about how to empower women during their periods you can check it out and see everything else that we do at goodgoodgood.co and on that note that is a wrap for this week's episode go out and google stuff and then just do it and we'll be back next week with another inspiring story from an incredible person sound good